When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It is highly necessary that I should, as soon as possible, possess full information whether the Wabash and Illinois Indians are most inclined for war or peace. If for the former, it is proper that I should be informed of the means which will most probably induce them to peace. If a peace can be established with the said Indians on reasonable terms, the interests of the United States dictate that it should be effected as soon as possible. But if after manifesting clearly to the Indians the disposition of the general government for the preservation of peace and the extension of a just protection to the said Indians, they should continue their incursions, the United States will be constrained to punish them with severity. Those were Washington's orders to Arthur St. Clair, Governor of the Northwest Territory, on October 6, 1789. And these words are where we begin this episode of the Presidencies of the United States. As always, I'm your host, Jerry Landry. We've been focused on the political maneuverings and machinations of the government in New York for the past few episodes, but events that occur around the same time in the Northwest Territory necessitate that we turn our attention west to the Trans-Appalachian region of the United States. As was mentioned in episode 1.1, folks on the eastern seaboard were looking across the mountains for the purposes of settlement and investment and the establishment of the Proclamation Line of 1763 and its threat to those aims was one of many factors which led the colonists to revolt against the British government. Thus, westward expansion was a major focus of the new American nation. There were already some settlements that had been established prior to the Revolution. Natchez in 1716, Vincennes in 1732, St. Louis in 1764, so on and so forth. However, these settlements were scattered and isolated from the rest of the nation. There had already been an attempt in 1784 by settlers in what is now eastern Tennessee to break away from the United States and establish their own nation that they called Franklin. Though it ultimately fizzled out, it did point to a very real problem that the new republic was facing. Namely, if the West wasn't engaged and brought into the fold of the United States, it was very likely that they would lose their western lands either to homegrown independence movements or to one of the European powers. The British, despite promising in the Treaty of Paris in 1783 to vacate their forts in the Great Lakes region, still retained possession of these forts and continued their close relations with and influence over Native Americans in the area. Meanwhile, the Spanish were scheming towards breaking off the western lands from the United States in order to strengthen their hold on the colony of Louisiana and had even managed to employ a secret agent to that purpose. James Wilkinson is someone that we will be talking about in more detail on down the road. But for now, all you need to know is that he was a general on the American side in the Revolutionary War, and after the war had become a prominent merchant in Kentucky. The Spanish government convinced him to serve secretly in their employ in 1787, with Wilkinson taking an oath of allegiance to the King of Spain and pledging to provide intelligence and to work as instructed to help to break off the western lands from the United States. Even without outside influence, there is already talk of separation in western Pennsylvania and Vermont, in addition to Kentucky. 
In an attempt to bring about more regularity and order to the Western lands, Congress under the Confederation government had passed the Northwest Ordinance in 1787 and established the Northwest Territory in what we now refer to as the Midwest. Future Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson would chair a congressional committee in 1784 that developed a plan that would become the basis of the territorial organization when it was finally implemented three years later. The establishment of this territory was only possible due to the various states that had claimed the area agreeing one by one to cede their claims to the federal government. However, this session also meant that it was the federal government's responsibility to ensure the safety and security of new settlers and new enterprises in the lands to the west. This was an issue particularly important to George Washington due to both his own personal investments in the region and his belief in the importance of the west to the future of the nation as a whole. However, Washington had little confidence in the Confederation government's ability to provide the guidance and support needed to develop the region. Congress had formed the 1st American Regiment after dissolving the Continental Army in June 1784 for the purpose of defense in the frontier lands and had even increased the size of the army the following year, but it was still a force of only around 500 soldiers that was scattered across various frontier posts. It was not the, quote, indispensably necessary force that Washington felt was needed, and he warned associates in Congress after his trip to visit his lands in the Ohio country in 1784 that he felt, quote, the touch of a feather would turn them, i.e. the settlers in the West, anyway. Thus, a more effective utilization of the military in the West was one of Washington's first priorities in taking office in 1789. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Advice flooded into the new president that year about how he should approach the issues in the West. Territorial officials, speculators, former colleagues from the Continental Army, everyone put in their two cents on what we needed to do to secure the frontier. General Anthony Wayne, who had retired from the Army to become a rice planter in Georgia, wrote to Washington and Madison in the spring asking for permission to, quote, organize and discipline a legionary corps that he would take into the Georgia frontier to confront Indians there and urging that, quote, a regular force be established to secure the nation's southwestern lands from both Native Americans and Spanish forces. Meanwhile, Henry Knox, in his role as Secretary of War under the Confederation government, had already warned in July 1787 of the logistical dangers should military operations need to be carried out against Native peoples in the Northwest Territory under, quote, the present embarrassed state of public affairs and entire deficiency of funds. And this desperate situation was reiterated by the territorial governor, Arthur St. Clair, in a letter to Washington in August 1789, when he asserted the need to increase, quote, the military establishment in the Western country, and stressed that by such an increase, quote, the people would derive security at the same time that they saw and felt that the government of the Union was not a mere shadow. Washington would ultimately decide to take a different approach to the situation in the Southwest than in the Northwest. Immediately south of the Ohio River, Washington and his administration would work towards statehood for Kentucky, as that area had a population of over 73,000 by 1790, 
and had a relatively small native population with which its settlers had to compete. South of Kentucky, though, was where the federal government's issues began. The land that ultimately became Tennessee was, at the time of the ratification of the Constitution, still a part of North Carolina. Its representatives voting for the Constitution in North Carolina's Ratification Convention of 1789. When the Old North State ceded the western lands to the federal government in 1790, it allowed for the creation of the Southwest Territory in an attempt to better organize resources and development in the region. A sober assessment of the strategic situation found that it would be far more difficult and expensive to conduct military operations in the Southwest, especially given the, as previously stated, limited military forces at the Washington administration's disposal. At the same time, there was every reason to believe that issues that southwestern settlers were experiencing with native peoples in the area could be solved through diplomatic means rather than through military action. Alexander McGillivray, a Creek leader and diplomat since the American Revolution, had long since used negotiation to pit powers of European origin against one another to the benefit of the Creek. McGillivray and other Creek leaders would travel to New York in the summer of 1790 to negotiate a treaty that would ensure Creek control of their lands, and with the U.S. agreeing, quote, to help the Creeks become farmers. McGillivray was even given a commission as Brigadier General due to his role in facilitating the treaty. Ultimately, it seems like Washington would have preferred negotiations to sending troops into either region. Indeed, he noted in his first annual message to Congress in 1790 his hope that the, quote, Pacific measures adopted with regard to certain hostile tribes of Indians would have relieved the inhabitants of our southern and western frontiers from their depredations, but asserted that, quote, we ought to be prepared to afford protection to those parts of the Union and, if necessary, to punish aggressors. At the same time, though, the native powers of the Northwest were focused more on armed resistance than on discussion. One can hardly blame them for feeling that to be their only way forward, though. The region was populated not just by peoples and cultures that had been there for centuries, but also with newcomers who had been driven west when displaced by the same white settlers who now wanted to come into their new lands. In some cases, prior negotiations had led to this situation. The Shawnee, in particular, had a reason for not wanting to negotiate, as they had been forced out of their land south of the Ohio River by the Treaty of Fort Stanwix in 1768, which the British had negotiated with the Iroquois, who had no claim over the thousands of square miles occupied by the Shawnee that the Iroquois had given up in the treaty without the Shawnee being consulted. Meanwhile, subsequent negotiations with the Shawnee after the Revolution had been approached with an air of superiority on the part of the American negotiators that it made those Shawnee who may have been wavering, quote, united in determination to defend this country. It may not have been an ideal situation to begin with, but increasingly various tribal leaders were coming to see the potential benefits in banding together in order to offer a strong resistance to the American settlers. Prepared to oppose them were two veterans of the Revolutionary War stationed in the Northwest Territory. Josiah Harmer was born in Philadelphia and had joined the Revolution as a captain in the Continental Army, ultimately rising to the rank of Lieutenant Colonel during the conflict and to Brigadier General afterward. Harmer was chosen in 1784 as the first commander of the new 1st American Regiment, the force the Confederation government created to replace the Continental Army. However, this elevation in command should not be seen as reflective of Harmer's military prowess. 
He was only chosen as such because Pennsylvania was the only state to meet its recruitment quota for the new force. And thus, Pennsylvania was given the right to choose its native son as the regiment's first commander. Harmer and his troops had been sent by Congress to the Upper Ohio Valley in response to the large number of white settlers who had moved to the region and, rather than purchasing their own land, instead squatted on land in the area. Harmer led his men in actions to drive the squatters off and ordered the construction of forts in the area, but they were not seen as an effective deterrent against native forces. Indeed, Harmer's tenure as the chief military officer in the National Service will be marked by a frustration at having not been able to achieve much over his six years in the field and a reputation of incapability and drunkenness. He does not seem to have been particularly popular in the region, especially amongst the settlers in Kentucky whose militia force, due to the close proximity, would be called upon for operations in the Northwest Territory and would often prove to be key to either success or failure of military campaigns in the region. The other key player in the area was the appointed head of the civilian territorial government, Arthur St. Clair. St. Clair had been born in Scotland in either 1734 or 1736, and, after attending the University of Edinburgh, had traveled to the New World as part of the Royal American Regiment during the French and Indian War, where he married the niece of the then governor of Massachusetts and settled in western Pennsylvania. He moved from one position to another in the frontier government before joining up with the Continental Army, where he fought in the battles of Trenton, Princeton, Ticonderoga, Brandywine, and Yorktown. At the conclusion of the war, he had risen to the rank of Major General and went on to serve in Congress, even completing a tenure as President of Congress, before being appointed as the first governor of the Northwest Territory. He was seen as being quite capable of handling this new set of duties and responsibilities, and, enjoying the confidence of Washington himself, had transitioned into the new government under the Constitution without question. The pressing question facing both men, however, was how to secure the frontier to an extent to invite in new settlers and industry. Theirs, as they saw it, was a mission of civilization, despite the fact that destruction would be their chosen path towards this goal. Though everyone seemed to agree the military force was needed in the Ohio frontier, the actual strategy to be employed was a pesky detail to be worked out. St. Clair and Harmer met in July 1790 to map out a plan, and the two agreed to a two-pronged assault in the fall on native towns situated on the Wabash and Maumee rivers. While a force under Major John F. Hamtramp worked around the Wabash to draw the attention of the native forces away from Harmer's force, the general would lead his force of around 1,450 men to take on the villages at the Maumee. The campaign was an absolute disaster that would come to be known as Harmer's defeat. Historian Michael Warner, in his examination of Harmer's campaign, concluded that the officers serving under Harmer, quote, left much to chance and improvisation in the details of their movements, and that the overall campaign suffered from the goal being, quote, ambiguous, with Warner arguing that, quote, no one in 1790 seemed to know how to use force to bring peace to the Ohio frontier. Harmer ultimately lost somewhere around 50 regular troops and around 100 militiamen in the campaign. None of this, of course, would stop him from claiming victory. Wait, what? Okay, so I guess he did meet the enemy and burned a few villages, and he estimated that his forces killed around 100 native warriors. Sure, we lost more people, but they've got less people in, you know, USA, USA, USA. Seriously, though, Harmer claimed victory when he wrote back to Knox. 
No one, either in the West or in the East, was fooled. When Washington learned in November of the defeat, he wrote to Knox that, quote, I expected little from the moment I heard he, Harmer, was a drunkard. His prior reputation was so bad that even his friend Henry Knox had urged him to remain sober during the campaign, sharing that he had heard, quote, that you are too apt to indulge yourself to excess in a convivial glass. Militiamen from Kentucky, who had witnessed their compatriots fall in battle, lunged on this as well as Harmer's other weak points and would publicly attack and denounce him with both facts and rumor. Though Harmer would be exonerated by a court of inquiry into his actions during the course of the campaign, this would prove to be the end of his military career, and he would resign from service in late 1791. With Harmer out of the picture, the administration would turn to St. Clair in order to achieve results. And it certainly seems that results were needed, and quick. After Harmer's expedition, native war parties spent the winter attacking white settlements on the north side of the Ohio River. Settlers were moving back from their new settlements, and Rufus Putnam of the Ohio Company was writing in January 1791 that, quote, Our prospects are much changed. Instead of peace and friendship with our Indian neighbors, a horrid savage war stares us in the face. Sinclair would travel back to Philadelphia, the new federal capital, to consult with Washington, his administration, and other officials in the government. He came amidst a wave of petitions, both from settlers in the frontier and land speculators who were concerned about their business prospects. Knox would formally request from Congress an expansion of the army by 1,200 regular troops, 1,300 volunteer levies, and 500 rangers. Though he wouldn't get all of his requests, Congress would approve an expansion allowing for a second regiment of 912 regular troops to be raised, and for 2,000 volunteers, in addition to a militia force, to be signed up for a six-month period in order to face the native challenge in the West. St. Clair received his formal commission as Major General in command of the Army, with Washington later writing that, quote, Your knowledge of the country northwest of the Ohio, and of the resources for an army in its vicinity, added to a full confidence in your military character, founded on mature experience, induced my nomination of you to the command of the troops on the frontier. However, his faith in St. Clair did not stop him from attempting to intercede in putting officers he trusted in charge. On April 4th, Washington wrote to Colonel William Dark, explaining the mission and that after the first choice to lead a regiment of levies had declined, Colonel Hall had been appointed to the post. However, Washington wanted to line up Dark as a backup and, regardless to his answer, asking his advice on the best men to name for three positions each as captains, lieutenants, and ensigns, respectively, in the levies battalion. From all that I've seen, it doesn't appear that Washington devoted quite as much energy and attention into the Harmer campaign, and it could be that he wanted to leave nothing to chance this time. Ultimately, though, there was only so much that he could manage from the East Coast. It does seem like the choice of Colonel Hall fell through, as Dark led the Virginia, Maryland, and North Carolina troops of the 1st Regiment of Levies. Overall, it seems like the people recruited were, quote, proven Revolutionary War officers, with St. Clair himself, as we've stated, having been, quote, an obvious choices commander due to his prior experience in the late war. Maybe Washington felt more confident about the chances of this force, but it would ultimately face some of the same logistical problems as Harmer's campaign had. Both campaigns suffered from recruitment issues, with the recruits that did arrive often coming late and being, quote, poorly trained and badly disciplined, as well as, quote, inadequately equipped. 
Both generals faced food and supply shortages due to overly long supply lines by land rather than river transport being utilized. At least in the case of Harmer's campaign, I have been able to confirm that this was an issue of budgeting and the government trying to economize, but I wouldn't be surprised if the same issue came up when St. Clair took command. St. Clair at least didn't have to deal with the problem of pack horses disappearing so that the owners could claim compensation, in some cases more than the horse was worth on the market. St. Clair just didn't have enough horses to begin with. Despite starting out three months later than originally anticipated, St. Clair and his command marched out of Fort Washington, modern-day Cincinnati, in September 1791. They marched to Fort Hamilton on the Great Miami River, then further on constructed a new fort that was named Fort Jefferson. However, supplies slowed their progress, both in having to wait for the supply lines to catch up with them, and with the irregular supplies, they were at half rations by mid-October. Desertions were increasing. Thus, when a large convoy of supplies finally arrived late on October 31st, quote, St. Clair ordered his most trustworthy troops to pursue the deserters and to protect the supply convoy. Little could he know what a mistake it would be to detach this force of 300 of his best troops from the main army. St. Clair and his forces had established a camp near a Miami village on November 3rd in what was corroborated by other members of St. Clair's command to have been a, quote, very handsome piece of rising ground that Winthrop Sargent, St. Clair's adjutant general, pronounced, quote, so defensible against regular troops that I believe any military man would have unhesitatingly pitched upon it. There were sentries assigned in front of the army in case of a surprise attack, but other defensive measures were not taken. As the force had marched nine miles that day, they were allowed to rest before constructing defensive fortifications. That work was to be done the next day. Do you hear the foreshadowing? Lo and behold, at dawn the next morning, St. Clair and his forces were attacked by up to 1,500 Native warriors. The Native Americans, after, quote, five minutes of full-throated Indian cries, first attacked the militia, which were isolated from the rest of the troops, then quickly encircled the rest of St. Clair's force, and, while holding the right flank at bay, decimated the left flank. This was a disaster. Out of St. Clair's 1,400 men, 647 were killed, while 280 were wounded. Also in the casualties were 30 women who had accompanied the army. Discipline on the American side collapsed, and it was every person for his or herself. Soldiers began, quote, throwing away their weapons and their gear in their frantic haste to get out of the trap. Ultimately, 470 men and three women made their way back to Fort Jefferson in less than 10 hours. Four days later, the survivors dragged back into Fort Washington. Not having expected St. Clair's forces back so soon, the fort was beyond capacity to the point where soldiers had to camp outside the walls despite everyone's fear that the native forces were right behind every straggling survivor that wandered out of the woods. Thankfully for those watching and waiting from Fort Washington, the native forces did not push forward following their victory. However, the psychological damage, both to those present and to government officials once the news traveled east, was already done. Besides being a thrashing defeat, the second and even harsher defeat than Harmer's in the short military history of the U.S. government under the Constitution, this battle stands out for a couple of key historical points. First, besides St. Clair's defeat, there is no agreed-upon name for this battle. Even Harmer's defeat is sometimes referred to as the Battle of Kekioga, after one of the key native villages involved, which was burned by Harmer and his forces. Why, then, is this battle just St. Clair's defeat? 
Well, St. Clair himself is partially to blame. In his account of the battle, he admitted that though he had been beaten on a river, because of the sparse intelligence gathered about the area prior to his route, St. Clair wasn't entirely sure which river it was. It is believed to have been the Wabash River, but as the American commander wasn't really sure at the time, and the guess of some present was that it was actually the St. Mary's River, it never became commonly known as the Battle of the Wabash, just St. Clair's defeat. The other interesting fact about this battle in history is that we don't know who the principal commander was, or indeed if there was just one principal commander, of the native forces that defeated St. Clair. Numerous candidates have been named, but at this point, without any new evidence appearing, the historical record doesn't allow us to make a firm conclusion on that point. So, if as Leroy Eid claims in his article on St. Clair's defeat, St. Clair was not, in fact, quote, peculiarly incompetent when he faced the mystery native leader's forces, then why did he lose? Certainly, the logistical errors in both recruitment and supply lines didn't help matters. The timetable was completely off, and it does seem that St. Clair may have had some reservations about whether he should begin the campaign so late in the season. It also appears that there was some infighting amongst the officers, with Ed noting that, quote, officers bickered publicly, sulked in their tents, and an officer, apparently piqued at St. Clair's treatment of him, refused to pass on essential information. Perhaps these officers were too professional for their own good and saw this as an opportunity to establish themselves in military service, i.e. a regular paycheck, for the remainder of their lives. It, however, lays out a persuasive argument that, despite the problems of the American force, the key to the victory of the native forces was, in fact, the native forces themselves. Granted, we don't know much of anything about the leadership in this particular action, but based on what we do know in general about warfare as engaged by native peoples of the eastern woodlands of the time, there is a significant difference in their military operations versus that of standard European warfare. Namely, the decision for war and the operations planned prior to battle were developed, quote, in a consensual context. Decisions were made by, quote, a council of officers rather than one previously assigned general commander. This does not mean that one person could not take charge and be the primary planner and organizer of military operations. However, this person would have to work within the system and build consensus for the plan. Indeed, Ead hypothesizes that one Mississauga chief, one whose name has been lost to history but was the subject of oral historical tales passed along, did act as the supreme commander in this operation. Through negotiation and compromise, Ead argues that this commander procured an agreement beforehand that ensured that the force that took on St. Clair's troops was unified and enthusiastic. There was no hesitation by the forces involved as, quote, Native American political and military leaders somehow smoothed over differences that normally separated various parts of the military alliance. This consensual decision-making process made everyone in the force, from the chiefs to the foot soldiers, more invested in the military action. Compared to the infighting amongst the officers, the poorly equipped and trained troops, and the increasing level of desertion that typified St. Clair's command, Ead does make a persuasive argument, quote, that competence and courage alone do not guarantee victory. Insightful generalship, soldierly qualities, and the resolve of the other side must also be considered. That is not how it was perceived by St. Clair's contemporaries, however. Washington received word on December 9th of St. Clair's defeat. He was called from one of Martha's Friday evening receptions. 
From contemporary accounts, he read St. Clair's account as delivered to him by a messenger, then returned to the reception without ever revealing to the guests that anything was amiss. Afterwards, though, he went to his parlor with his secretary Tobias Lear, and, as described by Washington biographer Ron Chernow, quote, blew up in tremendous wrath, throwing up his hands in agitation, scarcely able to contain his emotions. Washington would blame St. Clair for not keeping, quote, his army in such a position always as to be able to display them in a line behind trees in the Indian manner at any moment. Ultimately, Washington's wrath would subside, but the public reaction was a bit more prolonged. When the first official news reports came out in early January, St. Clair was originally thought of as a hero. However, this view was complicated by none other than Colonel William Dark. That's right, the one that Washington had personally tapped to join the expedition, who anonymously wrote an account that attacked Washington for his decision to dispatch St. Clair in what Dark claimed was an infirm condition. Dark wrote that St. Clair, quote, was under the necessity of traveling on a bier and wrapped tenfold in flannel robes, unable to walk alone, placed on his car, bolstered on all sides with pillows and medicines. A very tragicomical appearance indeed. While St. Clair did suffer from gout, from accounts that I've read, it seems that the campaign did energize him, and this description may be extreme hyperbole employed to discredit the Washington administration and the developing Federalist cause. Ultimately, this defeat would lead to two precedents that are now an everyday part of federal government. First, St. Clair's defeat led to the first congressional investigation under the constitutional government. The investigating committee would conclude that, along with the problems of troop discipline and inexperience, as well as the delayed start of the campaign, quote, the congressional delay in appropriating money for the campaign and the gross and various mismanagements and neglects in the quartermasters and the contractors' departments led to the campaign being a disaster. St. Clair was off the hook. His military career was over, but he would go on to serve as governor of the Northwest Territory for another 10 years. However, this investigation would lead to another precedent, as the committee sent a request in late March 1792 asking for Secretary of War Henry Knox's correspondence related to the campaign. Washington met with his cabinet about the issue, with the cabinet ultimately deciding that, quote, the executive ought to communicate such papers as the public good would permit, and ought to refuse those the disclosure of which would injure the public. And thus, the idea of executive privilege was born, and would be developed and tested by Washington's successors in office. Well, I think I've spoken long enough for one sitting. We'll leave off here for this episode. I feel like there's much more to be said about affairs in the Southwest Territory, but due to that region not being a priority for Washington and his administration, I'm not sure that it'll fit into the narrative in a future episode. Thus, I'm going to look at doing an out-of-narrative extra episode to cover some of what's going on down there, as some of what I found while researching this episode was fascinating, and as someone who went to college in Mississippi, helped me to understand that part of the world and how it developed a bit more. In the meantime, if you have any questions, comments, or just want to say hi, please feel free to reach out to me at presidenciespodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. I'm also available on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash presidencies or on Twitter at presidencies89. I'd love to hear what folks think about how it's going thus far or if there are topics that you'd like me to address. Just a reminder, I'm planning on doing a listener questions episode at the end of the Washington series of episodes. 
We've still got a ways to go, but if something comes to mind, please feel free to send it in so that I can either be sure to include it as I'm going along in the remainder of Washington's presidency or answer it for all of our audience on the Q&A episode. Please check out the blog at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y, dot com for source information and supplemental materials. Believe me, there's a long bibliography for this one. As I told my interlibrary loan guy at my library after submitting umpteen requests for articles while researching this episode, I probably know more about Harmer and St. Clair's campaigns than anyone could have imagined that they ever wanted to know. However, if it benefits your historical knowledge, then it's worth it. Till next time, take care, dear friends. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.